Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today's episode 3023 of the Survival Podcast. Going out a bit later than normal because I did get myself banned from YouTube for a week because of yesterday's show. We'll talk about that during the intro segment uh, once we switch over to the live feed. Because of uh, setting some new things up and trying to work a little bit differently to compensate for that, uh, I might have my timing off a little bit in this one. I'll apologize in advance for that. There's some times where I'm checking on some things and maybe a little longer pause than I wanted. I'll try to take those out. But today's main topic, again, is going to be 14 steps to build more freedom and resilience in your life. And uh, actually, 13 steps, I'm sorry, 13 steps to build more resilience and freedom in your life uh, through what we call proactive apathy. And I, I got labeled apathetic when I refused to get into everybody's fights and the monkey fights with politics and the Ass Clown Circus years ago. And uh, the image for today's episode is a picture of me walking toward the sunset on my property not long after we moved into this place. Uh, so this is nine years ago almost now. It was the it was during the first uh, on-site workshop we ever did here when we did the Hugel Garden Hugel Bed Gardens, and I ended up putting a quote on that image. And here's that quote, and this is where we're coming at from today: the only effective weapon of choice for the modern anarchist is proactive apathy toward the state and its system, solving your own problems, providing your own needs, and ensuring a future for your children on your own terms. I call it a quiet insurrection. That's what we'll be talking about today. Before we do, let's go ahead and uh, hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is jmbullion.com. That's right, jmbullion. That is my source for silver and gold, and it should be yours too. Now, this is why. One, they've been a sponsor of the show for 10 years. That says something. That says something about loyalty in the world of podcasting for anybody to sponsor you for 10 years. Number two, they'll give you a discount on silver and gold. No one does that, but they do. But they do. Now, you only use it once a month because there's thin margins of silver and gold, but most people only order their silver or gold once a month. Free shipping on all orders. And I can talk to the president of the company by email and get a response almost instantly, unless he's an airplane or something. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the discount code started to stop working due to a malfunction going into a new year. Emailed Michael over there, took care of it, boom. I've had other silver and gold houses ask to sponsor the show. When I say, can I talk to your president, your CEO, like whoever the top guys are like, no. I'm like, well, no. I was going to say no anyway. I just want to see what they'd say. And they also have better pricing. So silver is silver. Gold is gold. That's the entire point. So that's who you want to deal with, jambullion.com. Next up today, bulkammo.com, another long-term sponsor. They've been with us eight years. Eight years. Just talked to Dustin over there a week ago. They're sending me a check, renewing for another year. So loyal to us. All the all the ammo, common calibers you're looking for, shipped lightning fast shipping. Great pricing. Check them out at bulkammo.com. And again, MSB members, you do get a discount. With that, let's go ahead and drop on into the live stream for today's episode. And I will tell you again, there's a little some spots where I'm a little bit my timing's off and what have you, because not being on YouTube to have the interaction with the audience and trying to use two screens and trying to see if things were working had me thrown a little bit. I'll adapt, I'll adjust, it'll be fine. But if you at any point there, you're like, Jack, come on, get it together. I do, I do. It's only a second here and a second there. It'll be all right. Anyway, I uh, hope you guys enjoy this episode. And we are live, at least StreamYard says we're live. Uh, we're doing things a little bit differently today. 
Uh, I am on Odyssey. I am on Float. And I'm on Gab for the uh, first time ever, and I'm trying to work it out, guys, as to whether or not everything's actually working. Um, I do not see the Odyssey stream up and running. Uh, maybe that will happen in a bit. I do not see the Rumble stream running, but I don't know if maybe I have to hit play for that to happen. Uh, we shall see here in a moment. Uh, I see the loot video. So I'm still new to working with Rumble, and uh, I am certainly not new to working with uh, Float or Odyssey, but from time to time, things don't exactly work there. They seem to be working on Odyssey now. And, uh, again, we will see how they're doing with Gab here in just a se- not Gab, uh, Rumble here in just a second. And I don't see Rumble working worth diddly squat. So we'll see. We're going to go on with the show anyway. And uh, I will be checking in at least on Float and Odyssey for people making comments. This is, again, it's going to be a little bit different. And we'll start out with the why and the what happened, right? So yesterday I went on um, YouTube and all these other platforms except for Rumble, and I said, hey, I am going to have a conversation with you guys because I felt that the day of reckoning had come. It was time to really point out where over and over and over and over and over again, us so-called conspiracy theorists who were crazy lunatics who didn't trust science, et cetera, who were killing grandma by not wearing masks when we were alone in the woods and things like that. All the times we were right, how we were right over and over and over and over again. And in doing so, I impeccably sourced proof of every claim that I made. And I made a statement saying that none of this can be medical misinformation, which is what YouTube went ahead and said it was, the Gulag went ahead and said it was, um, because I'm not a doctor and I don't do medical information. I'm a journalist, and all I'm doing here is reporting facts. And every single claim I made had a link next to it in the audio notes, every single one. And every one of those links either went to mainstream recognized media sources, you know, the MSM, including, I mean, some were even on, like, CNN, right? I guess that would make it potentially misinformation, wouldn't it? Did CNN put it up? Up, all right. Um, but yeah, um, so I did that. And some of the more mainstream media, some of the more direct quotes by people like, I don't know, the CEO of Pfizer, not the, the VP CEO type guy from the past, if I, like, like the current CEO of Pfizer. Um, Moderna's filing to the SEC backing up what we said about mRNA being a genetic therapy, not a vaccine. Um, an explanation of how the FDA um, did, in fact, change the definition of vaccine so that it could be called one. I, I impeccably sourced everything. And, of course, I was then slapped by YouTube for medical misinformation. And it looks like we are actually working everywhere, including Gab right now, except I look kind of choppy over there. I don't know how I look to you guys. But I will be checking for comments in a bit. Anyway, um, they took it down. And they put me... In YouTube jail. Exactly what that means, I'm not 100% sure yet, because it says that I can't comment, upload, or live stream. Well, I didn't try to upload anything, but I did try to comment. I was able to comment. And when I tried to do um, a live stream, it said, you are a bad boy, smack of the hand. We said you can't live stream. We, we, we really mean that. So I won't be able to live stream for seven days, which will be into next week, uh, before I'll be able to live stream again. I guess Tuesday next week I should be out of 
YouTube prison. Okay. I want to tell you something, though. I'm proud. I'm proud that they took it down. I really am. Uh, I believe the video was up to somewhere in the neighborhood of almost 10,000 views uh, by the time that they took it down. From what I was getting from feedback, I, I think the video had taken a turn from where those of you that actually watch me in live streams and actually watch my videos versus people that listen to the podcast that you guys were sharing. And it was beginning to take on that momentum where people that didn't even really know who I was were sharing it. And that's when it gets very scary for people like the gulag because they're losing control. The ministry of truth doesn't like it when you, you speak bad speak, wrong speak. It's not words that are not in the approved dictionary, right? Um, had that video as damning as it was, as sourced as it was, not been taken down, I, I would have actually felt like I must have failed. I'm not saying I wanted it to happen, but I would have been surprised that it didn't. And here's what it means for the rest of this week. It means that, except for those of you that can actually see me on Facebook, because we know damn well I'm shadow banned on Facebook, right? When you take my followers and my friends and put them together, you get a number somewhere near 10,000, you put something up and 100 people see it. Come on, we don't have to be Einstein to do that math. That's my personal page, by the way. That's not like my TSP page with 110,000, you know, shadow banned followers or whatever. That's just my personal page. I don't even bother trying to work through the pages anymore. Um, Twitter, same shit, you know, 15,000 followers. Nobody sees anything. And this is just the way that this works. And it's okay. It's okay because here I am still doing what I do. And the honest to God truth is, I got to where I am with the survival podcast, not because of social media. Social media was mainly like a telephone for me to talk to people. I certainly didn't get here because of YouTube. My YouTube presence versus my podcast presence through aggregating services like Spotify and Apple Podcasts and stuff, the pull I have through the audio side is, is, is a thousand times that of YouTube. I didn't need them to get here. I don't need them to continue. And we're going to keep doing what we're doing. And when YouTube lets me back in the fold, we'll use it. Because there's only two negatives that I have with this. One is that I do reach a lot of people through YouTube. I do reach a lot of, and I reach them in perpetuity, meaning people find interviews and shows with specific content and all many weeks, months, even years later, and are able to partake in that content. The next one is that I'm able to communicate with you guys in real time easily with StreamYard because it's the, you know one of two services, Facebook being the other, that aggregates your comments into me, and I can do like I'm going to do with uh, with uh, Karen here. She says, I look great on Facebook, right? I can actually bring your comments in if you're on YouTube, and I can do that with Facebook. So I can't do that this week. And then the other thing is I have an interview tomorrow with a really great guy, and it would be great for him if we were live streaming on YouTube, right? So I feel bad for him. But overall, I'm proud. I'm proud because, as I've said before, you do not silence people who you can easily disprove. And you can look on YouTube and you can see that right now. YouTube is full of charlatans and con men with plenty of disinformation, convincing the masses of stupid bullshit on a daily basis. Many of them actually monetizing that stupid bullshit and conning people out of their money. YouTube doesn't have a problem with that. It's only the COVIDs, right? It's only the COVIDs that the gulag has a problem with. And I have to say that I, I, I feel like now, it could be because shadow banning has done the work for them, but I feel like YouTube is probably the worst 
uh, of the worst, right? Like there's probably not of, of like Twitter and Facebook. YouTube actually is quicker to take down videos and ban people. It looks like we're, uh, we're kind of hosed over at float rate now that, that does tend to, to lock up over there. So you might want to jump over to Odyssey, uh, or Rumble, uh, if you want to, uh, to check us out on the live stream. Anyway, I'm, I'm proud of it. I want to go on, but I just, I, I wanted to talk about it for a moment first because I have some people reaching out to me that seem very, very angry. I'm not angry. I expected it. I, I'm actually surprised by two things. One, it stayed up as long as it did. That's one. And two, that they didn't shut me down in the middle of it. I really kind of expected that to be the case. I think we got up over 500 people. Um, during the live stream, which is pretty high for us. And, uh, yeah, I'm surprised that it took until it took sometime last night, like around 10 o'clock last night. I think I got the message saying you're a bad boy and you're going to YouTube jail. Yeah. You know, here's the other thing. I am actually a marketer. I'm actually pretty good at it. And now I have a video that YouTube doesn't want you to see. I encourage you to share it with your friends. Again, it is on Odyssey and other locations. All right. With that, let's get on into the main topic of today's show. I want to talk about 14 steps to build more freedom and resilience into your life through what I call proactive apathy. And I actually came up with that term due to criticism. I, I've, I've been attacked many times in the 14 years I've been doing this for being apathetic because I don't get involved politically. I don't get on here and tell you, God, go vote for Trump, man, or Ted Cruz or whatever, right, or you know, God forbid Hillary Clinton or whatever it would be, right? I don't pick a side in the ass clown circus, false dichotomy, political clown show bullshit game. Um, I don't vote. I haven't voted in a very long time. When I, when I started the show, I was still a voter. Uh, I was protest voting for third parties I knew would never win, like, you know, the Constitution Party or whatever. And I, di I didn't really care. Like people say, well, that guy's not as good as you think. I didn't really care. It was just making a statement. That's why I don't pick on people for voting. I, I kind of look at it a lot like, oh, I don't know, believing in Santa Claus. It really doesn't matter. So why am I going to lose my shit about it? Um, but I got called apathetic all the time. You're just apathetic. You're, you have apathy. And I was like, you know, most people that say that, they don't do jack squat. They don't get anything done. They, they sit around posting shit. And they have, they live in this make-believe fantasy land that that makes they're fighting, you know, cause they, cause they argue with their, their brother on Facebook or whatever. But they go out once every two years or four years, depending on what kind of voter they are, and they vote. They stamp a button, they push a, a, a tab in, whatever it is today. And then they think they've done something. And then somebody like me hasn't done anything. And I, when this happened, I, I was like, you know what? You guys are right. I am apathetic, proactively apathetic. Instead of putting all my effort into my circle of concern where I don't actually have any influence, I put a hundred percent of my effort into my circle of influence and my circles of control, right? So your very smallest circle is your circle of control. Those are things you actually have a hundred percent control over what you put in your mouth, what you eat, what you don't eat, what time you get up in the morning, right? How hard you work. If you have a shitty job, how hard you look for a better one, how you develop your skill, like all of those things are in that circle of control. And then there's a circle of influence, which are things that you have impact on, but not direct control over. So, you know, raising a child, 
is 100% in your circle of influence, and it's it's almost 0% in your circle of control because it involves another human being. I mean, I guess when they're really, really little and you can basically hold them captive by putting them in a playpen, you have almost 100% control. But you tell that to any parent in the middle of raising a kid that age, they'll tell you you're insane because they don't even have 100% control then because, you know, they're changing the child's diaper at 2 o'clock in the morning or what have you. So we, we there's a lot of places where we have massive influence or all the way down to small amounts of influence. And it makes sense to operate anywhere within that sphere. And this is from Stephen Covey, if you've recognized it from that. And then what I never saw in The Seven Habits by Stephen Covey is circle of control being defined as a third interior sphere. And that's what we're going to focus on today. Like everything today will help expand your influence, but it's all within your, your circle of control. And if you, uh, if you start working that way in your life, you become more and more apathetic to your circle of concern. Your circle of concern becomes kind of like, I, I have no control over a massive cold front coming in, right? Let's say that fortunately it doesn't look like this is going to happen. Let's say it was going to go down to zero degrees and stay below freezing for two or three days. I know for some of you in Minnesota or whatever, that's like, that's Tuesday, right? <laughs> Which is today. And it's going to be next Tuesday too. But here in Texas, that actually disrupts things a lot. We're not, we're not geared for that. And we can't afford to be because you can't gear your whole life toward the most extreme thing that happens once every 50 years, like what just happened last year. So I cannot, like, if I pay attention to the radar hard enough, I'll make the storm go away. So it is in my circle of concern, but I have no influence over it. So the only reason for me to even look at it is to go, okay, what's in my circle of control that I can react to this before it gets here? And that's my only use for the media. That's my only use for politics. That's my only use for any of this shit. What's coming? You got to look at it like you look at, well, I was going to say the Weather Channel, but they're pretty much a pile of crap at this point. The way you looked at the Weather Channel back, let's say, 10 years ago, before the dancing clown was trying to sell you a mortgage and all that other shit, right? Like back then when it was just actually the weather and they didn't put everything in death red to get your attention, right? They just like actually told you, here's the storm, here's the front, here's what's going to happen. That's how you have to look at the media, politics, all of that now. Is this going to eventually affect me? And what you'll find is about 90% of what people lose their shit over, the answer to is it ever going to actually affect me is no. You know what people were losing their shit over this morning? I had to, I had to look it up because I, I didn't know what the hell was going on. Um, apparently Biden told, uh, Ducey, the younger Ducey from Fox News, he said he was a stupid son of a bitch or something like that. Um, cause Ducey asked him a question about inflation. And, uh, I think actually if you go back and listen to that, cause I, then I looked it up, like this would be a cool lesson for today, right? So I looked it up, and I, he's, and it says in the subtitles that Biden, Biden said something about an asset, like inflation, what an asset, right? And that didn't make any sense, and I thought it was at a dimension moment. And I, I think actually what, what what Creepy Joe said was, what an asshat. And he's just kind of mumbling it so it came out as an asset because it's the only thing that makes any sense. And then he said he's like a stupid son of a bitch or something like that because it is a stupid thing, of course, for a journalist to ask a sitting president – in the highest inflation that most living Americans have ever seen, if he has any concerns about inflation in the mid upcoming midterm elections, which the midterm elections in the first term of a president are always rough 
the best case scenario. It was rough for Ronald Reagan. It was rough for Bill Clinton. It was rough for George, George Jr., right? Like, like that, that would be a ridiculous question to be asked as a president is, is beyond belief. But you know what? It doesn't mean anything. I had a couple of people email me about it. And I don't mean to be a dick, but I, that's my proactive apathy. Like, I, okay, so how does this affect me? Well, it proves that Biden's a hypocrite. Okay. I don't need any proof that any politician's a hypocrite. I don't need any. The fact they're politicians, that's all I need. They're hypocrites. But this is really bad. No, it's not. I'm sure, I'm sure Mr. Ducey didn't run home and cry to his mommy. I'm sure he just kind of chalked it up. He probably looked at it a lot like, uh, like I looked at being kicked off YouTube for a week, right? More people know who I am now. No big deal. None at all. So proactive apathy is going into the places where you control things and building a better life for yourself, regardless of all the things that most people put their energy into. And it's not just politics. It really isn't. It's, it's actually, a, there's a lot of places that people, um, kind of get off track doing this, right? And, and, and end up in the same place. There's people that their, their obsession is, you know, reality TV celebrities did, did, you know, what Kardashian got what implanted and what ass cheek this week or whatever, things like that. Or people get really, really upset about maybe what's going on in the education system across the country, but they don't actually even like one place you could have a political impact is your local school board. Right. That's what we just had a guy on last week that ran for the school board, got elected and really made some shit happen. Like that's a, a place where you actually might, especially the smaller the district, right? The smaller the area, the smaller like Dallas school board. That's like running for freaking state office, man. But like, you know, these small towns and stuff like there's there's a real possibility to make an effect there. But instead, they're out there losing their mind that some drag queen read a story in Oregon. I think it's horrible. Don't get me wrong. But I also know that I have absolutely no influence on it. And I know that it actually doesn't affect me or my kids because we, we're not even in the system, let alone in the Oregon system. And so if that's going on and it's affecting you, there's things you can do about it, right? You can remove your kid from that school. You can, you know, run for, for school board office. And I, I think that's way better than voting. You can sue. The, the, the biggest impacts I've seen on government is through lawsuits, not through elections, right? And it doesn't always work out, but at least you got a, you got a shot. I was going to say a fair shake, but you don't. You have an unfair shake, but you do have a shake. You have a chance to be able to, to, to do something and actually have it enforced and to have it matter. But those are still, like, mostly outer edge of the influence. Let's go to the circle of control, and we'll talk about Because this was yesterday when I was doing that show. I kept having people say, but what's the solution, Jack? What's the solution? As though because I'm a podcaster, because I'm Jack Spirico, I would have some sort of Magic answer, right? I would have some, like, if you do these things, they'll all go away and hide in the ground again. The reptilians will get on their spaceships and fly back to planet Melnac or whatever the hell it is, right? That wasn't reptilians. That was, that was Alf, wasn't it? Melnac wasn't, wasn't that Alf? Anyway, here's 14 things I came up with that I put all squarely in the realm of proactive apathy. And I'm going to start out with the first one because, like I said, people seem like they want something that's like magic. They want magic, like a potion or a spell that we can use, an incantation to make them reveal their reptile inner selves and crumble and die or whatever, right? And just to be clear, I'm being facetious here. I don't believe in reptile aliens running the planet. Um, I'm just kind of pointing out that that's kind of the way people come at this. But there is no such thing as magic. 
There's no such thing as magic. Doesn't exist. There is nobody that can go, ah, and then a thing appears, you know, without some sort of actual mechanistic explanation, right? But there are things that are like magic because they, they work, they do far more work than you think they'd be able to do. And they, they have a transformative power. The true magic is the inner transformation of a person. So my first one, and I'm sure you guys have heard me talk about this so many times, it won't surprise you, is growing your own food. And growing your own food isn't magic, but it's like magic. It really is. So there's this there's this place down the road. It's called the supermarket, and you go in there, and you have to take money, which is basically a symbol for your life energy. And then you have to exchange that life energy in a thermal a thermal economic battery that we call a United States dollar, and you buy heads of lettuce or celery or chicken or duck or beef or whatever it is that you're growing, right? And then in exchange, you get that back. But when you start looking at, well, how much of your life force went into that bag of organic salad greens? And that bag of organic salad greens might be like eight bucks. And if you make 16 bucks an hour, that's half an hour of your life energy. But it's actually a lot more than that. Because unless you work for yourself, you you give your employer a lot more than if you work 40-hour weeks, uh, eight hours a day. You have the time you have to go there, the time you have to come home, the stress that puts on your life. There's a lot more that you're giving up. And I would say that most people, you know, take your hourly rate. If it's $20 an hour, um, then your your actual cost on your life energy to make that 20 bucks after the government gets their cut, after it's all said and done, after you stress out, worry about getting fired, maintain your professional capabilities, all those things. It's more like 40. You look at the back-end taxes you don't even see. So when you set up a system that produces food for you that requires minimal human effort, you just can magnify how much you get in return for contributing your life force to it. By like, To me, it's like tenfold. I, I don't think that the food that I grow in my gardens, once the initial financial investment is repaid, which is really quick, I don't look at it as costing me anything. I look at it as free. Yeah, I have to start the little seeds indoors, or I have to put the little seeds outdoors. I have to water the garden once in a while. I have to keep an eye on it. If there's some sort of disease or pest problem, I have to adapt to it and adjust to it. You know what? None of that feels like work to me. It's, it's all part, it's integrated into my life where I'm living a lot like our, our ancestors did. Instead of walking through the jungle, clubbing things and turning rocks over and picking mushrooms off of logs, I'm just a little bit more actively involved in the type of thing that grows and I kind of forage on my property. And that is like magic because it takes a power that we innately have as human beings that we've lost because we outsourced it and it gives it back to us. And to me, I, I just think that's a a fantastic thing. And what I love about it is it has like zero barrier to entry. There's like no barrier to entry whatsoever to putting in a garden. And people say, well, you have to have land. I guarantee you, you can find somewhere to put a garden in on somebody else's property. They'll let you. I guarantee you, no matter where you live, you can grow a little bit of your food in some containers uh, out on your patio or deck or something like that. I guarantee you there's a way to do this if you want to. And that once you do it, you'll start to realize that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of ways to do it. You'll figure out how much you want to do. 
but grow your own food. Number two, start a side hustle or a full-time business or start a side hustle with the goal of becoming a full-time business or start a side hustle with the goal of determining if it makes sense. And then if it doesn't, start another side hustle. Find something. Find some way to control your income outside of the system. It might be the most important one of all the ones I'm going to give you today. Because if there's been a place where I've seen a bigger difference in the happiness of my audience and all the people that are involved in my community to get in touch with me by all different ways, for email, some text, some of you guys actually have my personal phone number, uh, social media, when you guys come here for workshops and stuff like that, when I'm out and about and meet people, it's kind of crazy. I, it is kind of like being like, I guess like a, like a Z level celebrity or something. I'll be out at a store sometime or something like that. Just, you know, minding my own business. But Oh, you're Jack Spirko. It's kind of weird when that happens. But talking to people, the number one difference between the people that are the most happy right now in the middle of all this shit and the people that are unhappy, the happiest people that I know have their own business or some source of income outside of the system because it's made everything easier. There's so much it brings to the table. One is just income, right? Income independent of what somebody else says. Now, actually, I have a couple hundred thousand bosses. Everybody that listens to this show has some say in what I do and how I do it. But, you know, if, if you're one person and I piss you off, join the club. I think they have jackets. They get together and have meetings and drink and talk about how I suck. They're around the corner of Main and 12th Street. Go down there and hang out with them. Like, you, you don't have that much control, right? And you're, you're not going to, and you're not supposed to. That's the point of like building a business that's distributed across a, a large number of, you know, customers and, and, and partners. So that if anyone really decides they don't like you anymore, oh well. It's not like YouTube and they can just pull the plug. You still have options. So you have the income that's independent of what somebody else says. Well, right now, you know what else is independent of that? I, I don't think no matter what rule OSHA comes up with, that Jack Spirico is going to require Jack Spirico to get the COVID jab. It's not going to happen. Right. And if I, if my state was stupid, which Texas is one of the few not completely stupid states right now, but if my state was, let's say I, I was living in Pennsylvania, like I did many, many years ago when this shit started, do you know how much effort it takes to pick up and move the survival podcast business? There's nothing to it. Like the only thing is when I move my household stuff, I have to move a couple computers and some sound equipment. That's it. So if Pennsylvania, if I was in Pennsylvania when this shit started, Dorothy and I have already talked about this. We would have, we would have packed up and moved. You have that level of freedom. You can do what you want to do when you have your own business. And it, it does other things beyond just the income and the income independence. If you run your own business, you will know more people that you will have more relationships with that you can rely on for more things. Whether it's a content business and you have kind of the social capital that comes with that if you, if you're good at it. Or if you're, I don't care if you run, my dad ran a tire shop when I was a kid. A tire shop. You know? Used tires and gas. That's what he sold. He knew hundreds of people in and around that part of Jacksonville, Florida. We lived in Jacksonville, Florida back then. And if he needed something, he needed an answer, he could pick up the phone and get it like that. And I've, I've never known people that are employees unless they have some other way they establish social capital to have that. But I've never known an entrepreneur that's successful. It doesn't have that because it necessitates forming relationships to be successful. So it is one of the most proactively apathetic things you can do. And that's why I say when people say you're apathetic, what they're really saying is you're apathetic to the things that they think are important. 
The only way you're totally apathetic is if you sit on your ass all day and do absolutely nothing. Trust me, if you're out growing your own food and building your own business, you're far from apathetic. You're proactively apathetic. Next up today, learn new skills constantly. You should be learning to do something, anything. I don't care what it is. You should, you should come away at least every month. Here is something that I can do that I couldn't do before. And if you, uh, if you don't do that, the way I look at it, you are, you're wasting your dash. You know that life force we talked about putting into the form of a dollar bill and going down to the store and buying food with it? That's your dash. That's your life force. And I don't care if you're, you, you just are an employee and you're happy with it and what have you. You still should be learning new skill sets. And those skill sets can be within a larger macro. We're going to talk about cooking here in a minute. And it could be learning like a completely new technique within cooking or a completely new way to cook that, it, that expands what you can do with that that macro skill set in the micro niche, right? Uh, or it could be like maybe you've never done woodworking before in your life and you learn basic woodworking skills, like what we used to learn in middle school and high school in woodshop class. You know, how to use basic power tools, how, how, how you finish wood, how you fit, how you design, build something like a cabinet or a, you know, we're kids, you build a spice rack or whatever it is. It could be how to sharpen a knife. It could be if you've never fired a gun before, learning how to safely use a gun. Well, then from there, there could be other micros within the macro. Because when you tell people like a new skill every month, they take it as like mastering something you've never did before completely. And most skills that are worth learning don't work that way, right? I mean, there's skills that are pretty basic that we kind of learned just by growing up, like how to wipe your own butt properly in the bathroom. Like that's a skill that... You know, once once you grow to a certain age where mom's like, I'm not doing it for you no more, you kind of master it really quick. It's not hard. And there's no there's not a lot to add to it after the fact. Right. But if you look at something like archery. Right. So maybe if you already have already learned to be a good archer and you can shoot a bow accurately, that doesn't mean you know how to hunt. If you know how to hunt, it doesn't mean you know how to hunt with a bow. If you know how to hunt doves, it doesn't mean you know how to hunt deer. If you know how to hunt deer, it doesn't mean that you know how to hunt predators like coyotes. So when I say one new skill a month, I'm, I'm, I'm going down to that level. But I think there's also like at least a few of those in every year should be totally out of your existing box. And I don't even care what it is, learning how to make a knife. You know, we talk about that a lot when we have knife kits as a sponsor. And when their day comes up, I always mention you learn so many skills just by learning how to make even a kit knife. Because you learn how to attach handles. You learn how to deal with the pins. You learn how to do finishing the knife frame that comes with it, you know, the kits aren't that high end or anything, but they're not sharp either. So that, then you have to learn how to sharpen a knife that has no edge, right? Then maybe you have to learn to do some leather work so you can make a sheath for it. Now that you've done that, now you know leather work. Well, maybe you can learn other things to do with leather work. And maybe you kind of like some of these things you learn how to do and they, they add to the quality of your life and to your overall capability, your overall uh, polymath quotient, but you decide, like, okay, this was cool. I know how to do it. I did that. Now I want to go do something else. Or sometimes you end up taking deeper dives into them. I don't care how you do it, but there should be something you can definitively say. At the, you know, January 1st, 2022, I did not know how to. And on January 31st, I know how to fill in the blank. And then at least a couple times a year, 
That should be totally outside of the existing wheelhouse that you have. Most of us are going to live into our 80s. That's just what the math says, right? If, 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 you're, if you're not dead yet, right, and you're listening to this show, you're probably at least in your teens. You're probably going to leave it, live at least into your 80s, and some of us are going to live to be over 100, right? And with some advances they're making, if they stop trying to kill us, right, they, we might actually all start living into more. You know, I've listened to some, uh, some futurists and things like that that say, like, the people that are alive right now, if you're not going to be dead in the next 20 years, you have a good shot of making it to 110, 120 with some of the advancements being made. Some of these guys know about things we don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I don't care. But let's say you live to be 80. That's a lot of years to waste without adding to your skill set every year. And I think there is a point, though, where you get to a certain level and you start to look in the rearview mirror and there's a lot more behind you than there's left in front of you. And maybe you have the dexterity and the energy begins to decline and maybe you can't keep adding. Well, that's the time that you really need to start teaching. And I think we should teach through our whole lives, by the way. Like, I think when you learn something, if you want to become better at it, go teach it. Go teach it to your next-door neighbor, your best friend. Teach it to your dog. I, I can tell you from doing a lifetime of public speaking and teaching, there is no better way to learn than to teach. Right? They say those that can't do teach. I think those that are teaching actual skill sets, how to do actual things, whether their their job title is teacher or not, they do become very, very masterful of the things that they teach. So no one to make that transition. Um, number four, your body. Get in good physical condition. I don't mean go run on treadmills, right? I, I don't mean that. Um, I, I, I don't mean go to the gym and lift weights. I think both of those are wonderful things if you want to do them. I don't mean run marathons. I don't mean go do CrossFit. I don't mean any of that when I say what I'm talking about right here. Okay. I'm also, again, I'm not putting it down. I'm just not what I'm talking about. When I say get in good physical shape, the number one place that I'm focused on is your diet. What you put in your mouth. You have a hundred percent control over that. About three years ago, maybe a little bit more, I realized I had no business telling anybody how to live their life, even though I'd spent, you know, the previous 10 years doing it. Because I was not in good physical shape. I was extremely overweight. And I had yo-yoed in and out of being overweight in that period. And I was eating some things that I probably shouldn't have eaten. But if you want to know the truth, the real problem was drinking. And the drinking and the food were highly related to each other. Because I've always been pretty good about not eating a lot of cookies, cakes, crackers, high-carbohydrate things and stuff like that. Junk food, etc. But, you know, as my grandkids were here more and more, Because my grandma, my, 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 my wife is really big on being grandma and having stuff for the kids and the kids can have snacks and shit. The food's here. That makes it possible to eat it. And when you drink more alcohol than you should, it never fails that, oh, I could eat a little bit of this or a little bit of that. And then you wake up in the morning and hey, there's a half a bag of Cheetos sitting out on the countertop. And I would have never eaten those. If I didn't, you know, drink a few more vodka tonics than I should have and, and get into that drunken munchy stage and lose those inhibitions and judgment. And a lot of that was going on. So it's also about controlling the substances that we use. And I, I drink a fraction now of what I drank back then. And you, I don't care how much you work out. And you guys that are like 23 right now, and you like, when I was 23, I went to the gym every day, you know, um, Every day I went to the gym, I worked out, I lift weights, and then I went from the gym to the bar, right? 
and, uh, you know, pounded some beers and, and chased girls and stuff like that. And I did that almost every day of my life. And I, I was in very good physical condition, but not because I went and worked out every day. That didn't hurt. But really what had me in good physical condition is I was 23 years old. Right? I was in 23 years old so I could get away with that level of abuse. And I'm telling you, guys that are young, get control of this now because you will reach a point where you'll realize, man, what have I done to myself? And you will have to rein that in. And what I'm seeing now, which is very disturbing to me, is the condition that I ended up getting myself into in my early 40s. People look like that in their mid-teens now. They're not standing up to it as as young adults, where they're they're kind of enduring it or whatever. Um, and it's not a genetic change. We haven't changed that much genetically in a couple generations. It's that the food is so much worse. The quality of the food is so much worse. The additives in the food are so much worse. And there is nothing that will make you more able to get things done and to accomplish things in your life and being in good health. And it's very important for your emotional and mental health as well. This whole idea, you know, the healthy at any size movement and everything, this is just fantasy land. No one is a hundred pounds overweight and actually happy about it. You can pretend to be happy. You can let people tell you you're still wonderful and prettier or whatever, but I'm going to tell you right now, you know, unless somebody has a weird fetish or something, you're not, highly attractive to the opposite sex, no matter which direction you're going in. You are shortening your life and you're harming the quality of your life. And if that's fat shaming, okay, then, then fine. Then I'm fat shaming. I don't think it's fat shaming. I think telling people the truth. I think fat shaming is seeing somebody go, Hey, you're a big fat ass cubble lord. You're gross. You're nasty. I think when you hone in on a person and you do it like that, I think that's shaming the human, the individual on the other side of the discussion. I think saying, hey, being overweight is bad for your health, shortens your life, destroys your kidneys, gives you diabetes, fucks up your joints, fucks up your life flow and your life energy. I think that's just being honest. So get your shit together, guys. And, you know, not everybody has to be keto. But if you're seriously overweight, it's where I would start. That's where I would start. At least paleo. Um you know, Ken Berry said here at the workshop, there are people, not net carbs here, all carbs, 100 carbs a day. They bring their carbs under 100 carbs a day, and everything comes into alignment for them. And there's people that, like Ken and I, if we eat 100 carbs a day, we gain weight. I don't care how healthy kind of, like, we can't do it. There's different body types. There's different genetic dispositions. And we have genetic and epigenetic uh, components to our health. And we can actually, with habits, end up activating genetic characteristics due to epigenetic activities. And what I mean by that is many of us carry genes that are kind of negative genes, maybe to a disease or an illness or disposition, mentally, emotionally, physically. Like we have that gene, but that gene is kind of like an inactive gene. And abusing our bodies physically and mentally and emotionally can actually activate that gene. And that is, that's, you know, I know I get accused of medical misinformation, but that is uh, quite scientific. But we also, the good news is we can largely reverse those trends. And so I abused my body for a good decade. And uh, I'm not going to do it anymore. And I suggest you take that action as well. Uh, and again, if that upsets anybody, then you probably, I would say if you are upset by what I just said, 
you are one of the people that really, really, really needs to hear it. And you really, really, really should do something about it. And if you, if you don't, you will be able to convince yourself that it didn't matter. I wasn't really talking about you, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But if you do, six months to a year from now, you're going to write me an email and you're going to tell me I helped save your life because I've had it happen time and time and time again. I can't tell you how many emails I've had since I decided to go keto with people that did it that say, like, I was going to die. I know I was going to die. Maybe it would have took 20 years, but I was killing myself. And how much better their life is today. I think that and people that got out of debt and people that built businesses. Those are the three things I get the most thank you emails for. Next up, homeschool. I know I say this all the time, but it isn't that long that we get to live. We have a very short period of our lives called childhood. And I'm going to say it ends at about 16 to 18 years of age, true childhood. I know I, I certainly look at a 22-year-old as a kid, but they're not a child, right? Maybe 16-ish. And in that time period, we only have a narrow window within it that we're really able to make decisions for ourselves and have recall of our experiences. If you ask me things that happened to me when I was uh, five years old, I can tell you some things. Not everything, but I can tell you some things. If you ask me some things that happened to me when I was four, there's some very faint memories. It's really six, seven that I can really remember, like, what was going on in my life, how I was living, who my friends were. So then the window of real childhood is somewhere in the range of 10 years. And we take our children now. And we send them to a system that we know is inherently evil in what it's doing to them. This is not a knock on teachers. You know, I I get on journalists all the time, but I also give them some leeway. And I, I look at teachers kind of the same way. The reason the journalist that you're listening to on your local news or uh, does the investigative reporting or writes an article for a major publication or something like that doesn't tell you the truth because they're not allowed to. And I've talked to tons of journalists that say, yeah, I, and I've talked to tons of teachers that, you know, I don't want to do this, but they make me and I'll lose my job. And this is the way things are. And you don't understand. I do understand. And I don't want my grandkids to be part of it. So I, I, w- I, I, I hear so many people say the following. I would like to homeschool, but I can't. And then insert list of excuses here. And let me explain to you the difference between an excuse and a reason. A reason is a, a reality that, that prevents the thing that you're trying to accomplish from happening that cannot be changed. An excuse is kind of the same thing, except you haven't tried to change it yet. If you've truly asked yourself, how can I do this? And you've run out the clock and you've exhausted your brain and you've, 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 you've asked that mental computer over and over again, computer solve for X. How do I effectively homeschool my children? If you've talked to other parents in your area about load sharing some of the responsibility, if you've talked about to your, your in-laws, their, your child's grandparents on both sides about this, if they're retired, if you have re-examined whether it even makes sense for both parents to work outside the home, if you've looked at it from a standpoint of what's the real cost of childcare after school and all of the things that go with it and you really can't find an answer, then you don't have an excuse for not homeschooling your children. You have reasons. 
I have not met anybody with reasons yet. And it's because the brain's so powerful. Now I might meet, I'm open to meeting somebody that has reasons that really has exhausted everything that hasn't immediately shut down their own mental computer. Because if you say, well, I'd like to homeschool, but, and that, I don't care what you say after that, you're never going to figure it out. You're not. But if you say, how can I figure out how to homeschool? And this is not just homeschooling. This is like everything in your life. You create this background process in this mental computer. The most powerful computer in the known universe right now still is the human mind. I don't care what they've done with AI. It's not as powerful as the human mind. When you're walking the dog, when you're taking a dump, when you're mindlessly typing up a TPS report or whatever it is, it's still back there in what we call the subconscious, and it's trying to figure it out. And if you, like, re-enter the command once a day for a month, I bet you're going to find some answers. And often we'll find answers, and the sacrifices that we have to make, we decide aren't worth it. I won't judge that. I won't judge that. If it was just me, if it wasn't for my wife, I don't think that we could, I, I don't think I could personally by myself run my business and homeschool my grandkids. But load sharing between the two of us, we can. I think that if I gave my granddaughter another two years, we could. I think she'd be old enough. And on point enough, and her brother already helps her, but he'd be, he'd be a little bit more able. And I think I could get by one parent, you know, one, one person in the home doing it. But that would mean that I can't figure out how to do it. It might mean, Hey guys, I'm going to do four podcasts a week because then maybe what I'm going to do is I'm going to reach out in my neighborhood. I'm going to find at least five families that want to do this and we're going to load share one day a week each. Right. There'd be something that I could do. And I'm going to tell you what made me go to my son and my daughter-in-law and say, please let us do this for your children. It was COVID. And it was seeing how little time those kids actually needed to put in on a daily basis to do what the school expected done and asking myself a question. So the school eats up nine hours a day of their lives, half the year in that 10-year window when they get to be kids for what really takes them about two hours a day to do. And then I thought about my niece, very good kid, coming home from school every day with two to three hours of homework, still giving that nine hours. And I asked myself, what the hell are they doing with my grandchildren in all that time? And I knew the answer. Social programming. And to be blunt, my response to that was, yeah, fuck that. Maybe I, I didn't figure this out when my son was in school, but I figured it out now and fuck that. And I went to them and I said, let's just try this. Let's try this. Let's do this for one semester and you tell me what you see in your kids. And the whole world has changed now. For everybody. I just went out to the living room before I started this live stream. My granddaughter was doing 
uh, gymnastics. And that's where my wife, if you saw me wave, my wife just came and waved goodbye because she took kids to gymnastics. And she's doing her gymnastics. She's working on her form and her round offs and stuff like that. And I asked my wife, I said, so she done with school. She said she just finished another one of her courses for kindergarten for the year. So she has four courses in kindergarten for the year. She's completely done with two of them. And the other two she'll be done with probably before we get through February. And then we'll take the rest of that time and we'll do things like gymnastics, but we'll also do things that are more like unschooling. So we're kind of taking a blended approach. They get done with their work for the year. They can pick one course and keep doing it for the next year, or they can unschool. It's their choice. You know, like real life is, where you actually get to decide for yourself. So you learn the discipline. You learn what's going to work better for you. My grandson yesterday um, went to art class, right? And that's an, we have an actual well-known, like won a bunch of contests and stuff, artists here in Texas, one of the best-known artists in the state of Texas. My grandson takes art class with him one-on-one, right? Like, what's the value in that? It's certainly more than we pay. Uh, my, my granddaughter loves out school. She learns about all kinds of things on out school. She cheers when she does out school. Like, all of that we've been able to give them. And there's time, it's not magic. There's still times when like, when my my grandson gets a writing assignment, he's kind of lazy. Like I was as a kid, he don't really want to do it. And it's like, okay, look, here's what's going to happen. You just don't need to worry about all your other courses. Isn't this beautiful, right? Like I said, like you still have to do all this other shit. And I'm like, we're going to have no problem getting done with this long before the year's up, right? And in fact, my grandson right now is kind of like two of his courses he's at grade level and two of his courses he's at the next grade level on. From this blended approach, right? Because that's what he wanted to do. But right now, we're not going to worry about these other classes you like to do. You're going to finish this writing assignment. If you want to go screw off half the day and then come back and work on it, fine. But if I don't see some progress, then we have to talk about it. But you decide when you're going to do it. But this is it. This is what I want you working on. And it gets done. And then it ends up not ever being as bad as he thought it was. And because there's not all this other shit coming at him, he just gets through it. It's one of the best decisions we've ever made. And I encourage you until you've talked to other people about it and, and, and analyze the situation. You know, if you have in-laws that are grandparents that live close, breach the subject. You know, maybe they don't want to do it, but maybe they want to do it a couple days a week. You know, maybe you can find a hybrid approach. There's, there's always an answer. And what they're doing to our children is criminal. What they're doing to our children is criminal. What they're teaching them about the world, how they're teaching them to think about themselves, it's criminal behavior. And it's only going to get worse. And the only thing I know that you can do that they pay attention to is remove them from the system because they see your children as dollar signs. That's what they represent in those deaths. They're dollar signs. Um, bureaucrats, this is important to understand. It's something I learned in the Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Dad book about the way bureaucrats think versus the way an entrepreneur thinks, or even just a business person that's running a department in the private sector. I judge my success on a lot of things, right? Like the letters I get from you guys and stuff like that is a huge part of it. You know, when you tell me the things you've done in your life, but more importantly, when I, when it, when I, not more importantly, but equally important because I got to pay the bills when it comes to money, the less money I can spend and the more money I can earn, the more successful my business is as a business. And the less people I need to get the work done, the more I can be a one man shop, right? As long as it doesn't drive me crazy, 
the better off that I am. And I, and if I can make a million dollars a year as a one man show, that's like a triple quadruple home run, right? A bureaucrat doesn't see it that way. The more money they spend and the more people that work for them, the more successful they are. So when you take somebody like a school superintendent or a principal, the bigger their school is, the more employees they have, and the larger their budget is, the more of a success they are. So in other words, the more money they spend, the more successful they are versus the more money they earn. So in that equation, I don't care if the person started out where their intentions were as, as, as white and light as the wind-driven, fluffy, white, dry snow. In the end, the job will make them that way. And that's, we, that's what our education systems become. Next, get out of the lunatic cities and states. States are one thing, cities are another, man. I'm telling you, there are even some of the states that I, I would just say get out. If you tell me you live in New Jersey, get out. Why? 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 Why, why do you live there? Like, you know, and then I have to think, you know, it is the Garden State, and I, I was born there, and, you know, I lived in Pennsylvania for a long time. I lived in eastern Pennsylvania for quite a long time. Spent a lot of time in New Jersey. It's a beautiful place, you know, as far as ge geography, seasons. Like, I can see why somebody would want to live there if there were no people there, right? But, boy, there's a big difference in living in one of these absolutely lost-their-mind lunatic cities or counties even within the same states sometimes, even the states that we look at and say, you know, it's a lockdown state, people are shitting in the streets, and they are, but not everywhere. You know, California's a big place. I, I don't really understand why anybody lives in California, but it, uh, it's, I wouldn't live there, but even if you do, get out of the parts where they truly control your life. Because a lot of your ability to do the things that you really want to do a lot of that hinges upon the freedom to be able to do it unencumbered. And man, I, I, I don't ha understand how anybody right now is willingly choosing to live in a place where you have to put a mask on every time you go outside. That's just one example. And I've talked about this so much. I'm just going to leave it there because it's a pretty basic thing. But if you live in a place that makes you miserable, move. Exercise your right as a human being to determine your own destiny based on, among other things, but one major thing, where you live. Next, learn the most basic forms of herbal medicine. Remember this all started out with the, the, the statement that there is no magic, but there are things that are like magic. Herbal medicine is like magic. You cut your arm. It's not serious. You don't need stitches, but it's... It's painful, you know, there's a abrasion, let's say you see fall, you get a scrape, it happens. You take this plant, comfrey, this other plant, plantain, and hopefully you've done this in advance so you don't have to do it after you hurt yourself, right? And you put it in some olive oil in a slow cooker, a little like a mini crock pot, pour some olive oil over it. You don't even, you don't even measure it, you just kind of big old handful of shredded comfrey, big old handful of shredded plantain, pour the olive oil over it. Turn it on. Leave it in there for a day. Lowest setting. At the end of that, you strain it off, throw a couple chunks of beeswax in it, pour it into some little jars, you know, with this green sticky salve. Put it on your arm, cut heels, and usually, to, to, it, just based on what I've seen, it, it more than, it cuts the time by half to completely heal. From two plants that you 
you know, either grew as weeds or they either grew as weeds or you intentionally planted on your property. There's really not a lot of things in the world that give you that much control. And this is why I think, you know, growing your own food and these, this one go really tightly because they, they do involve some level of gardening or foraging or something like that and additional kind of specialized knowledge. But they both take something that we have been led to believe we need someone else to do for us and let us do it for ourselves. And that are that easy not only to do and to teach. When I first, the first exposure I ever had to herbal medicine wasn't even making a salve, but it was plantain and comfrey. My grandfather, and I still don't know what he did to this day, but my grandfather had like, it looked like he took like a, I have no idea again what he actually did, but it looked like he took a potato peeler or a carrot peeler and just went like on the inside of his, his F off finger and just went, I mean, it was just skin removed. It looked like a, a single layer, just straight off. And he went down the garden and he pulled up a couple leaves of plantain and a couple leaves of comfrey and he mashed it all together, like kind of like an on the fly poultice. And he just kind of stuck it to the side of his finger and he took uh, like a gauze and he wrapped it and he put a small bandaid on it more to hold it like tape than anything else. And like two days later, I saw him, you know, take I'm sure he'd done it a couple times by then, take it off. And it was almost completely healed. I was a little kid. I mean, I was like seven, right? It was somebody, you know, kind of age where you start to actually remember it. I was kind of like, I was on summer vacation staying up there. I was still living in Florida back then. And I was like, my grandfather's a sorcerer. He can do magic with leaves, right? You know, I was telling, I'm telling my friend that. I'm like, no, he can't. Yes, you know, you're old kid. You're stupid. Yeah. Yes, he can. My grandpa's a sorcerer. He can heal things with leaves. Um, but I never forgot that. I remember that a hell of a lot more than most of the things I was told in school. And it's done a lot for me than most of the things I've done in school, not to beat that horse again. But when you learn how to do things like that, you start taking your health into your own hands and you start to understand yourself a lot more. So learn the most basics. There's a book called the herbal medicine makers handbook. And instead of taking some course for 200 bucks from some master herbalist uh, on, on the internet, start there. I think the book's like 20 bucks or 25 bucks. It's a, you know, highly illustrated, full color, fairly thick book. But honest to God, that one book will teach you everything that you, you could ever really use as an individual, unless you want to go that extra level, kind of going into that master herbalist, you know, formally trained world and everything that you work with in it is completely safe. And man, you'll do great. You'll do great. Yeah, Salima says about your uh, your Jack's grandpa was grand off the gray. He kind of was, man. He was a tough old bird, man. That dude, he he was the one that had the coal pieces of coal embedded in his arm from a mine accident. I I think he was just one of the toughest men that ever lived on planet Earth. Um, he was the kind of guy you never cried in front of because you just you couldn't bring yourself to do it. You're like, I, it's not going to work. It's not going to help me. Um, next up, build a local network. We talk about this a lot, but I wanted to say it today a little bit differently. Build a local network. Do not base it on ideology. Don't be look like, yeah, man, you know what's coming with the Great Reset and food shortages and all this stuff, man. We need to get together. We need to have a community. No, fuck that. Just to be blunt. What happens when you do that, unless it's somebody you really know that you know already thinks that way, 
they, they think a couple things. One, this guy is a flipping lunatic. Two, if they are kind of in this wheelhouse, you know, they think he's a fed. Even if you're not like, like, like this is not the way to build bridges. There's a guy down the road from me. He raised cows, he raises cows. I buy a half beef off of him every year. He's part of my local network. We know his daughter really well. Um, they actually, the reason we have Lucy on our farm now, Lucy, our dog is because they basically found her running on the streets and they were trying to deal with her, but they really didn't want another dog. And we talked to him and we'd like, if you can hold her for a day, we'll come get her. And so they actually help us, you know, get the dog that we have now. So like I would call that somebody with a significant level of, you know, we have had real social interaction. I couldn't tell you if they're Democrats or Republicans and I don't care. My, my gut would be knowing them. They're probably Christian conservative, And they probably do vote and they're probably Republicans, but I don't know that. And I don't care. And I didn't ask, but I know if I text him right now and say, Hey, do you want to sell me half beef? As soon as he has another run ready, he'll do it. That's a pretty valuable resource. And I know that if he asked me in any way that I can help him, I'm going to help him. And he has no, like, I don't think they have any idea what I do for a living other than they know I'm a podcaster, but they don't really know what the pot, like they just don't care and they don't need them to care. We've never had a discussion about the Great Reset. I don't care. I want to be able to buy beef from somebody locally. That's an important piece of my network. And I, I encourage you to build networks based on that. And then do build it on common interest versus ideology. So, you know, go on your next door. Maybe do a meetup at your house if you have a beautiful garden. I'm going to be t teaching you guys. You know, I'm going to do a workshop for free on spring garden planting. And do it, you know, a couple weeks before things really need to get planted. And then the people that come to that, as I get strafed by the F-35s again, hopefully that's not too loud on the microphone, um, the people that come to that are going to have that interest in common with you. And then you end up taking the relationship from there, wherever it goes, without trying to manipulate the relationship. And that's a very, very effective way to do things. Um, and it is how networks worked socially in this country before the internet existed and everybody started leaning on the Facebooks of the world and having so many people that you know that you feel like you have this personal relationship with people that you've never met. And then that, that, that is a great thing. And I'm glad we have it. I've, I've built everything I have using that, that, you know, mega network, right? But we have lost something. You know, my, my grandfather had a really good friend that lived up the road from us. His name was Buddy Shoemaker. He made wine. Amazing guy. Dude had social capital out the ass. Could pick up the phone. Pretty much knew, like, all the major influencers in the little town of Minersville's phone number on, on top of his head without a book. Of course, back then, we didn't have an area code dial, and everybody had the same prefix. So you, if you knew four numbers, you knew somebody's phone number. I'm not kidding. But if you needed something, he could pick up the phone and say, hey, uh, Jack Jr. here needs something. If it came from him, if the person could help, they were going to help. I don't know who Buddy Shoemaker voted for. Don't care. My grandfather didn't vote. He didn't care. Like, I don't, you don't need to get into that level of we're doing this because. Just build networks. Just build relationships. And get on it because it needs to be done. Next, turn 
off the mainstream media, and I mean all of it, including, yes, Tucker Carlson on Fox News or whoever your favorite is. Turn them off. You don't have to do it forever. My challenge today, 30 days. I did an episode a long time ago. People really liked it. You can look it up on the website. It's called Turn Off the Fucking News. I think there I said just two weeks. I'll give you two weeks if you'll do that. I mean none. I mean when you're on, even if you're on like social media and somebody posts something that would normally trigger you into looking at it, you know, don't. Two weeks, ignore all of it, 100%, because this is what happens. You go and you turn it back on after your 14 or your 30 days, and you go, what a bunch of meaningless bullshit. And then you realize, like, I thought that this mattered in my life and know that it didn't. There are so many people, they feel like if they stop paying attention, something bad will happen. Nothing will happen. We're going to go to war with Russia over Ukraine. Probably not. I don't think we actually will. I think that this will be used as an excuse to spend a bunch of fucking money. I think we're going to be highly manipulated with. I think it's all being done for a reason. I think that Russia and the United States are talking on the back end about what actually it will look like on the front end. Hopefully I'm right. I usually am. Hopefully we don't go to war with Russia. That would be really stupid. But let me tell you something. That's either going to not happen or happen whether or not you watch Fox News or CNN. So stop watching. You will be amazed at what happens in your life if you turn it the fuck off, just to be blunt. Next, become a great cook, a really great cook. And every time I talk about the subject, I do whole episodes on cooking. I think we're going to do one next week. I was going to do it this week, but other things are going on. I'm just like essential cooking, uh, kitchen gear and how to use it and what techniques go along with it. And whenever I talk about this, People say, is that really a survival skill? And I think about a few things. Number one, hey, how did your grandmother or great-grandmother survive the Great Depression? How important was grandma or great-grandma being able to look at the limited amount of food that was available for the table, including what was foraged from the mountain or from the back garden, and being able to cook for all those kids? How important was that to their survival? That's pretty important. Number two, do you think... Money is a survival topic in, in the millennia that we live in, right? The 2000s. I think most people agree it's kind of, a, it's kind of important. Okay. So if we could put money back into our bank accounts by spending less and eating better, it's a survival topic. And, and I, there's just so many places you can go from there with it, but becoming a great cook is one of those things that it's it's back into the realm of it's not magic, but it's like magic. I'd much rather people ask me a lot of times when they're in town, can we, you know, can I take you to dinner? And sometimes I go, and I, I like to go out to eat. Y'all, y'all know I post pictures of it and stuff. Like I have some of my favorite places and all, and I like really good places with really good service. But in most instances, I'm like, why don't you come here and I'll make you steak? And they're like, well, I don't want you to have to have to. Are you kidding me? Have to. You know, the fact that I don't have to wait, you know, for some server to come bring me the check or bring me my freaking drink in the beginning. The fact that I don't have to leave the house, that I'm going to have a meal as good or better than what would be served to me, that I have complete control over it. 
that I get to see the expression on somebody else's face when they eat food that's that good from somebody's, you know, back backyard kitchen. Man, and it it saves so much money. And it's one of those skills that not only can you learn it, you can teach it, and you can empower your kids or your grandchildren with it. You know, my grandson knows how to cook. The other day he wanted bacon and eggs. Tear your ass, man. He's freaking 11 years old. Eggs come out. He does them over easy, perfectly. Actually, not even over easy. Really sunny side up, but basically with a little trick I taught him. And, you know, his bacon, he makes that bacon perfect. He takes pride in it. My granddaughter's learning. She's not all there yet. We're not going to turn her loose with a gas stove and a sharp knife at five, but she's learning. And she'll get there. And most people grow up, they don't learn that anymore. I learned a lot about cooking from my grandparents. Learned about grilling from my grandfather. I learned about, you know, a lot of stuff I don't do. My grandmother was more of a baker than a, than a cook, but I still learned about kind of the value of being able to do those things. It's incredibly important and it's a skill we've atrophied from so much and there's high interest in it. Look at some of the most successful YouTube channels on the planet, right? Like Guga Foods and what have you, and uh, Brother Green Eats has changed now. It's uh, Pro Home Cooks and stuff like that. How, you have these individual videos on like things like you know how to stretch your money and cook, and you get millions of views because our young people. When I say young people, I'm talking like college age primarily are realizing how big of a loss it was in their life that they didn't learn this stuff. You know, and I know people in our kind of extended family that they never cook a meal at home. Everything is either microwaved or go out to eat. And to me, that's really sad. And it's definitely something we need to take back into our lives. And it is a survival still. Uh, learn to hunt, fish, forage locally. This is one of the, probably the most valuable things from my childhood is learning all of that stuff. And you know what, though? It's also one of the best memories and one of the only truly good memories of my childhood. My childhood sucked. I don't need a pity party, so I don't talk about it a lot, but I come from a very screwed up family. Um, and hopefully as I get older, it won't manifest in some way with a serious history of uh, mental illness across the board. Um, but man, I, I remember those days in a deer stand. I remember the pride. You know, it's even just the dough. I remember this one doe I shot. I think I was 15 years old. And it was for a doe. It was huge. Northern deer get a lot bigger than southern deer. This deer was well in excess of 200 pounds. It was an older doe. And I remember looking at that and thinking how many meals my family would eat because I, at 15, took the shot and made it. I remember all those days of working in the garden, you know, with my grandfather telling me what to do. I remember going up on the mountain and picking blueberries and blackberries and wild strawberries. I remember the big, we would have these big get togethers in blueberry season where we would get, you know, dozens of people together and maybe it's like five families and we'd go out and pick blueberries and we had these like trays, like cafeteria trays. And as you'd bring your jar back, you know, somebody would be sitting there and kind of sorting through them and throwing away all the red and green ones that got in there by accident. And, you know, everybody would end up with a big pile of blueberries at the end of it. And But it wasn't just about getting the blueberries. It was like it was a thing to do. You know, it was community building. You know, these things actually do tie together. I remember going out to the streams, you know, after, you know, the all the initial stocking and everybody went fishing and you're catching the ones right out of the stocking truck and all. And, like, when that kind of ebbed out before bass, you know, kind of the warmer part of the year, bass season came around, there were still trout. 
if you worked for them. And I remember being able to go out there and, you know, come home with eight fish, 16 fillets as a teenager and knowing that was going to help feed the family. It, it was enormous. The ability to be able to do those things, to be able to grow food, to forage food, to hunt and fish. My God, it, it, it probably saved my sanity. Maybe, you know, even I, I would tell you it's, it's, it's an incredibly, and it's, it's something you have an opportunity to learn how to do. And a lot of people say, well, like where I live, you know, you can't really hunt deer unless you have money because you have to do a lease or something. And, and maybe, maybe so, but I bet there's a place you can go learn hunt squirrels. And you, you might be surprised at how good squirrels are if you start shooting some squirrels. Um, I, uh, I can make squirrel better than just about anything you've ever, I definitely would be better than chicken. I won't get into how today, but if we do that cooking show soon, maybe I'll give you my method for doing squirrels, but learn to fish, learn to hunt, learn to forage, learn to use the natural resources that are around you. And you know, foraging is very diverse. Like that could be mushroom hunting. Um, maybe there's something that can actually be harvested for money. There's a lot of opportunities in that next one. And the last one before we wrap up, is practice daily mindfulness, I guess is the way that I'm going to put this. And I don't, I don't want to put anybody off with it. So I want to, I want you to kind of understand how broad I'm going to be with it. Maybe it's meditation, like true, full on actual meditational time. Maybe it's every day you sit for 20 minutes and pet your dog. And don't worry about anything in the world except petting your dog and being alone with your thoughts. Maybe it's prayer. You know, I, I, I have a, a Catholic school background. I grew up going to Catholic school or Catholic Sunday school, one or the other, until I was in eighth grade. And uh, I consider myself a deist today. I, I want nothing personally to do with organized religion. I'm not going to say that it's all bad. I'm not saying that having some contemplation about your place in the universe and having some concern about the way you treat other people is not a good thing. And if that's what works for you, then that's what I respect people's beliefs. And if that's what works for you, that's what works for you. You can be an atheist and you can still have that kind of reflective time. You know, maybe it's taking a walk every day. I talked about staying in shape earlier and said, I'm not really talking about lifting weights or whatever, but for some people that athletic experience is part of kind of a meditative state. I know somebody that's a, a rock climber and it's a very meditative thing. And it's one of those things that like the reason it's meditative is you can't really be worried about your next promotion or that big report or whatever. When you're hanging from a rock face, you have to focus on what you're doing. You know, maybe it's taking a walk in the woods. Maybe it's going out to the garden, just sitting there and taking it in. But it's one of the most important things there is for real mental health. And I think that we use the word mental health, and we use it in an incomplete way. When we talk about mental health, we generally talk about it from a standpoint of things that are disruptive or a disorder in our lives. Like, do you have, you know, like dealing with like schizophrenia or something like that, um, or PTSD or, or whatever it is, whether it's something caused or something genetic or some combination of the two, again, genetic and epigenetic working together. And we don't think about mental health from a standpoint of being healthy mentally, Right. Like you cannot have any sort of, you know, mental health disorder, no diagnosable disease, not needing any kind of medications or long therapy or something like that. And you can still be miserable. You could be a miserable person that wants to punch people in the face all the time. 
There's even a lot of reasons to want to punch people in the face. There's a lot of people in the world that I'd get in line to punch in the face. But it's not healthy mentally to live that way in anger or stress. You can stress an organism to death. You can kill an animal with nothing but stress. Sick, twisted scientists have done it. They've taken things like a rat and constantly stressed the animal. The animal will either have a heart attack eventually or it will stop eating. It will go into nutritional decline and it will die. And not everything like that is a binary on off. There is, again, you have your life force and imagine it burning. And when you're under stress, it burns a little faster. You can reduce your age. Even if you don't reduce the date that they put you in the ground, you can reduce quality of life, especially at old age. So having something that pulls you out of whatever you're in, because I don't care if you turn the news off and on, there's still going to be things that go on that stress you, that upset you, that anger you, that raise your blood pressure. And it's not because you have clogged arteries. It's because you're really freaking pissed off. Because I don't know, maybe your business got down, shut, by the gov- shut down by the government. And it was handed to you in a third or fourth generation business, and now it's gone. I'd be pissed too. But whatever happens, we need to learn to, as healthy as possibly, process it and then say, well, what are my options? What are my tools? The problem is, if you have a problem in your life, you know, we say in, in, in permaculture, that's a pretty good place to end too. Problem is a solution. But only if you can think. So... If you have a problem with pests and they're completely destroying your garden, in that moment, it's almost impossible to think, how do I deal with this problem without spraying everything with chemicals, right? Especially if you're sitting there looking at it, actively happening. But if you pull away from it and you think about it strategically, then you can come up with a solution. And that applies to everything in your life. So having this daily mindfulness, and I don't care, again, what it is for you, where you extract yourself from that situation for that time and then go back and seek the solution. Ask yourself for the solution and then let go, right? Like that horrible Disney uh, song from that Frozen movie, let it go, let it go, right? Let it go. But let it go doesn't mean just let it go and it's gone forever. Let it go means I've understood the issue. I've accepted that it's a problem. I have given the mental computer a command, but now I'm going to go do this thing that's just for me. I'll take a freaking bubble bath, get in the hot tub, run around the block, go gardening, pet the dog. I don't care. Pray, meditate, sit in the lotus position and contemplate your navel. I don't care. Have something. Have something. And you'll find that people that do live longer, healthier, happier lives and have better relationships with people. Because here's the thing, guys. No matter how talented you are, no matter how much you have to offer the world, no matter how good of a person you are inside, nobody wants to be around a miserable person. Nobody wants to be around a depressed person. And no one wants to be around an angry person. And that doesn't mean that people won't be for you in those states. But if you're chronically that, People find reasons to not be around you, and then you end up alone. No one wants to be with somebody who's always mad. Nobody wants to be with somebody who's always looking at the darkest side of every situation. Nobody does. Nobody wants that. And it is taking that time 
to think about and contemplate something greater than yourself, however you do it, that pulls you out of that. You know, my final thoughts on this, kind of coming back with why I wanted this subject today, and it it has to do with having my video taken down yesterday, right, by, by ScrewTube. We're winning. We're winning. The people that are not falling for it are winning. Because when your entire playbook is based on a lie, if there's any resistance, you will never have the momentum. If you think about it in the beginning of all this shit, they, it was like when the Nazis invaded, right? Like they took all this territory and they came to a high tideline of maximum expansion very, very quickly. And then what happened? Everything from there was a slow collapse. And that's what they did with all this shit here with, with the COVID, right? That's what they did. They took, they got a beachhead around the whole world all at once. And some of us just didn't go in. Some of us just didn't secede territory. We just said, no, I'm not going to do it. And then what happened? Other people after a while said, wait a minute, I thought this was 15 days to flatten the curve. This is six months now. And they looked over and there was something, there was an option they had. We were an option. Go learn more facts. Go realize not everybody's going to die. Go realize it's going to be okay. And our numbers grew and their numbers shrank. And this is the death of a COVIDian cult. But it's actually, that's just a piece of the battle. This has all been going on for a very long time. This desire of government to control everything and everybody in every way possible. That is the desire and the natural progression of government. And when I talk about government here, I'm talking about all of government. Anything that exerts power over your life. I'm talking about the oligarchy as well as the elected official as well as the bureaucrat. All of it together, the corporatocracy, all of it. It exists to propagate itself and to have more. More, more, more. No government has ever over time intentionally made itself less powerful or smaller. And I defy you to prove, prove to me that it has ever happened in any level of sustainability. You might make a little bit of case that the government in the United States shrank a tiny bit for a short period of time after World War II. That didn't last very long. It is counter to the nature of the beast. But they went too far and they went too fast And they're losing. And that's why a company worth billions of dollars like freaking Google needs to silence a redneck hippie duck farmer with a microphone. And the way we keep winning is we do the types of things that we were talking about today. With that, I will, uh, I will, uh, answer some questions now. And I'm going to do this. I have like 45 people watching me on Odyssey. It's, it's the one that's reliably working right now. Let me check Rumble real quick. But if you've got a question or a comment for me, I see nothing on Rumble. I see me, but I see nobody using it. That tells me something right there. Um, but if you give me an all caps, I'll try to address your comments or questions here real quick at the end. Uh, a farmer's kind of life says homeschool for the win. Uh, that's Amy Dingman, guys. That is uh, the, the, the gal that can answer your questions from the expert council about homeschooling. Uh, It's an asset, more inflation. <laughs> I think it was asset. I really do. Uh, yeah, I saw that too. Uh, he's talking about Biden there. Uh, let's see. 
Joker John says, California is beautiful, but they've gone wonko, never living there again. Yeah, I've always said California is one of the most beautiful land masses on the planet. But the government has made the state unlivable for anybody that really values freedom for decades now. Um, not enough doers and ideology groups. They just want to bitch and do nothing. Autumn, Autumn, Autumn Dawn. Yeah. Autumn Dawn's the one that said that I completely agree. And that's why I say you leave, you leave the ideology out. If you successfully form a group of people that regularly get together based on political ideology, you will accomplish the square root of fuck all. You will get absolutely nothing. And I mean, absolutely the square root of fuck all, nothing done. Because that's all it will be is a bitch session, and you will find ways to argue with each other, to fight about the 1% you disagree about. Because that's what libertarians do, right? Go to a libertarian conference, and it's like a knife fight. It's a knife fight over a 1% that they disagree about. You're not a good enough libertarian, right? And God help them when there's an anarchist in there that doesn't know they're an anarchist yet, but's talking like an anarchist. Then it really goes to shit. But if you get a group together, that's the, the, the thing is that we're going to do is we're going to meet, you know, frequently. Or like, I don't even know that you need to meet, like, it's some regular scheduled thing. But, like, when somebody says, hey, I'm going to do a barbecue this week. But, hey, I, I'm trying to get some things done. If you all come over, like, a couple hours before we eat, maybe you all can help me. And you'll find that, you know, you're doing some kind of construction project and you, you, you're you trying to put together something with, like, a back wall on it. And you think you know what you're doing framing and you don't. But somebody that comes does. And let me show you how to do this. And then it's like, you know, kind of not a scorekeeping thing, but like, you know, when Bill asks next time, I'm going to go to his house and I'm going to help him. Or if you just build a network of people that do business with each other, hang out with each other and know each other, then you'll get things done. I, I completely agree. Humble Mechanic says, Jack, man, mindfulness has helped me so much. Humble Mechanic, glad to see you on the air today. When I reached in and got my shirt off today, I almost wore your, wore your T-shirt today. I wish I would have now. Um Yeah, I I can't tell you how important this is. I, I know people in my life that deal with health situations, but they still work their ass off. And if it wasn't for taking those occasional breaks like that, I, I think they would have already worked themselves into the ground. It is one of the most important things that you can ever do. It's it's I, I also tell you, like, it is one of the things that I actually few very rare things I miss about military service, guard duty. Uh, guard duty sucks in some ways, but on the other side of it, it's like, You know what? I don't, I don't have any other things to worry about right now except guarding this place that we all know no one's coming to bother, right? It's, it's, it's a, it's a looky show. Like unless the sergeant of the guard or the colonel comes around, I'm just going to sit out here alone with my thoughts. And I think I learned a lot about the value of mindfulness during that time of my life. Um, during some of my deployments where I was in places where you were either working or doing nothing. You know, so you just kind of found a place to be alone and, and chilled out. And I also learned a lot about it from hunting and fishing because when you're standing in a creek with water up to your knees with a little thin line trying to drift a, you know, a mealworm up under a cutout bank because you know there's a trout in there or you're, you know, you're jigging because you're looking for white bass out on a lake or something like that. And then that fish hits and then you're connected to that animal. And it's a it's as much a one on one fight as you could ever have. And that little fish that's a pound actually has the advantage in those stick ups or, or whatever. And you you know you have to balance that equation. It's uh it's hard to be worried about you know how much you're going to pay in taxes this year. 
And so again, I don't care how you do it. That's awesome. It's, it's just an awesome thing. Starting with small steps is what opens the door, says Potted Tree. I agree completely. Do something, anything. I don't care what it is. I've had people email me and go, well, I'm growing some herbs and some pots on my, on my porch, but that's no big deal. I'm, I'm looking to do something else. I'm glad you're looking to do something else, but don't say it's no big thing. Don't, like, herbs are like the most expensive thing we buy for food by weight, period. We spend more money on herbs per pound than we do on beef. Not a bad place to start, and you're learning something, and you're doing something, and you're getting something done. Um, Azul Wolf says, do you see Pennsylvania as a viable place to live for feral hill people for the next 10 years, or is it uh, fate dire like New Jersey and Maryland, New York being on its own level? <sighs> Rural Pennsylvania, I can't speak to anymore because I haven't been there in so long. But Pennsylvania's a big state. It's a area wise. It is a big state. It is a good state for growing food. It is an, I mean, there's a reason, you know, that you have the Pennsylvania Dutch farmland because it is incredibly fertile farmland. It is a very good, you know, seed, uh, growing zone. Most of the state is six, six A or six B. Um, you get that seasonality. It's got a lot of wildlife. It's another state that would be a great place if people, the people that run it weren't there. But I, I think if you're in true rural Pennsylvania, not where I grew up in Pottsville, but like you're kind of out in the sticks, your neighbors down the road instead of next door. Um, I don't know anywhere if you get into that environment where you can be, you know, completely interfered with. You might be breaking 20 laws a day, but does anybody care? Now it's always a risk because it takes one person that cares to, because you know, our system of law enforcement in this country, is, you know, 80% of the time is complaint driven. Meaning if no one calls the cops or the code enforcement or something like that, you don't, it, it doesn't, ha nothing happens. Very few of our encounters with law enforcement other than traffic. You take traffic out of the equation is you're minding your own business, digging a hole, right? And technically where you live, you're supposed to get a permit to dig a hole, right? And there's, you know, County sheriff or township cop or state cop driving down the road. Hey, there's a guy digging a hole. I think I'll go jack with him. I'm sure it happens, but I've never seen it, right? Like most of our interaction with any kind of enforcement agency is a complaint driven situation. So even in states that I wouldn't really want to live in, I think you'd be okay if you think about it intelligently and are strategic with it. I mean, ideally, if somebody said jack, I'm not going to give you enough money to have Jackistan, right? Because Jackistan is an island with freaking Mondus machine guns and turrets around the island and no, you can't come. And it has a flag that has my picture on it and says, this is Jackistan, AKA fuck off a stand, right? Like they're not going to give me that kind of money. You're talking like hundreds of millions. But if somebody said, Jack, here's a check. Cause I don't know. You're a good dude. And I like you for $20 million. That'd be enough to get me to leave here. Maybe not sell the place, right? I'd still maybe hold on it, but it'd be enough to get me to go buy a different place to live, right? It really would. Like, it'd probably be less than that, but 20 minutes, I wouldn't even be a question. And I'd want something like, you know, 160 acres, and there'd be about a 40-acre square with, like, trails and shit in the center, and it would be surrounded by freaking trees, and there would be no complaints because nobody would be able to see in. And, and, and so, you know, I know not, you're not probably going to do that, but thinking that way. 
kind of like if I'm going to put in a driveway, I want to put in an S turn driveway so that the house is back here. And what I'm doing, I, I want to be able to be blunt. I want to be able to go pee off my back porch and I don't have to worry about offending anybody. Like if you do that, I think you're okay. Even in Pennsylvania, um, guard duty equals time for self-reflection, contemplation, mental exercise from Joker. John, I agree. Survivor says, what about Maine? Dude, you, you, you've lived in Maine your whole life or you've lived near Maine your whole life. You have property in Maine. You know more than I do about Maine. I don't know anything about Maine. But I'll, I would say everything I just said about Pennsylvania, I would say about Maine, like even if Maine loses its mind, like the last couple times I was in Maine was years and years ago when I was regional salesville VP uh, for Fluke Networks. And the only place I went to in Maine was Portland. There's a, I'm sure there's a big difference between where you have your bug out location in Portland. So you, you're a better expert on Maine than I am. Um, Scrambler said guard duty sounds like pressure washing on a sunny day. Kinda. Yeah. Uh, Joker John says mama grew up on a tanker farm in Altoona. Uh, Gramps was a hard ass, uh, railroad man. Yeah. Uh, sounds like the same part of the world that, uh, that I did some of my growing up in. And, and yeah, they were, they're tough people back then. They're the, the generation that preceded us was so much tougher than we are. And when I say generation that preceded us, I, I would say if you're 75 and I'm 50, we're in different generations, but I'm putting us, we're us. And when I say generation that preceded us, I'm talking about like, you know, my grandparents, you know, if my grandfather was still alive today, I haven't done the math in a long time. I think he'd be about 120 years old. Yeah. Actually he'd be a little bit older because he was born like 1899 I, or no, he was born in 06, 1906. Right. So would, would he be 114 that generation? Man, they were so much harder. You know about people that lived through World War One, the Great Depression, and World War Two. In that order, they were hard people, but they were good people, and they looked out for each other and they had each other's back. And I wish we could bring a little bit of all of those things back in. Anyway, with that, I think we'll go ahead and wrap up today. I'm sorry we didn't have as much interaction with the audience. Uh, Again, I, I I know you have to have an account on Rumble. I've never really been big on Rumble. I wanted to talk about it a little bit today about whether or not I'm going to continue to broadcast there, but I thought it would be good to have another option. Uh, we'll see if it gets any traction. But with that, uh, it's been Jack Spirko with another episode. You all take care, and I'll be back tomorrow with a great interview. Well, that wraps it up, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do, you know you can always help support us. There's a couple ways you can do that. One way you can help support us is to join the member support brigade. Now, if you join the member support brigade, here's how it works. It's 50 bucks a year. It's not much money. It comes out to 18.3 cents an episode based on how many episodes we put out every year. So if you think the show's worth 20 cents an episode, consider joining. But then number two, we'll have discounts to over 70 companies. A lot of stuff you're probably buying already anyway. Garden seeds and stuff like that, I've got that. Tactical equipment stuff, I got that. Uh, food storage stuff, I got that. You name it, we've got it. I mean, we've got ammunition, silver and gold, we got that. CBD products, herbal teas, we got that. We got a ton of stuff. It's almost impossible. If you like the kind of content that we do, that you're not buying some things that you could get from discount uh, vendors, supporting partners, butcher box, grass-fed uh, beef and pasture poultry, we got that. That discount alone is $120 a year on a $50 membership. Just the Butcher Box membership. $10 a box for life. Pays for your membership every year by itself. So if you are interested in any of the things we talk about and you become a member, your membership pays for itself. In fact, it makes you a profit. 
Next up, the other ways you need to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Now, if you're going to shop online in the next day or so, just go to tspaz.com before you do. That way you can get all my reviews and recommendations for products that I own and I use and, and I recommend. And if I didn't, I wouldn't recommend them to you. But as long as you start there, no matter what you buy, you help support us and the work that we do. Uh, I don't have an official item of the day for you today, but I am going to reiterate my request from yesterday. Read the real Anthony Fauci by Robert Kennedy Jr. I have a link in the email and all today. It's right on the front page of the website at the survivalpodcast.com. It was our item of the day yesterday. I'm just basically rerunning it again today. The more I, because I'm going through the audio version of it right now, the more I listen, the more I learn. And the more I realize how messed up the world is. Now, we just talked about being proactively apathetic. What that means is I'm not going to get drug off into that world, but I am going to reaffirm to myself that I cannot trust them ever, 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 never, ever again. Ever. And one of the things that makes you able to be effectively, proactively apathetic is to know what to pay attention to and to know what to ignore. And if you understand the way the system is working right now in the pharmaceutical industry... And you expand that pattern recognition and realize it's done in all aspects of so-called science today. I'm not putting down science. I'm not putting down a scientific education. I'm putting down the industry that's using science as a talisman to screw people over and make money. And if you learn to recognize that in the pharmaceutical industry, where it is right in your face right now, then you'll be able to recognize it everybody, everywhere. And you'll know what to pay attention to, and you'll know what to ignore in, that, in the words of that famous country song. On that note, and songs, I mentioned yesterday that there's a song called Get, Get What You Get by Aaron Lewis. And I've really gone away from playing music at the end of the show anymore, but I'm going to play that one today. Like I said yesterday about this song, what this song says to me is I will never forget and I will never forgive for what you have done. And I will never trust them again. To me, that's what this song's all about. Hope you enjoyed. It's been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast. You can strike a match and then dance in the fire. Cry every time you get burned. Like cracking the seal And then blaming the bottle A sobering lesson to learn And I don't have amnesia And Lord knows I ain't Jesus Cause I can't forgive or forget And sometimes when you give you get what you get. You can't keep telling lies and changing your story and expect the whole world to believe. Use the stars and the stripes to serve your own glory. Yeah, 
Yeah. 